Hi, this is Colin McCallan. Thank you for listening. Please do us a favor and leave us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe so that you don't miss any future episodes. Thank you. Welcome to Is This Legal? Here are your hosts, attorneys Colin McCallan and Russell Hebbets. Hello, hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Is This Legal? I'm here with my partner, Colin McCallan, coming to you from Denver, Colorado. Hello, everybody. So today we are going to cover two really interesting cases that have been in the news. We're going to cover the Brian Walsh attempted or actually murder charge that was just very recently filed. This is another murder without a body. So anyone who has listened to our Barry Morphew part one and two podcasts will know that this there's a lot to this and we're going to dive into it and it's really interesting. We're also going to talk about Alec Baldwin, who the DA in New Mexico just announced this week that she will be filing involuntary manslaughter charges against Alec Baldwin for an accidental shooting on the set of a movie or TV series, a Western called Rust. So we're also going to have, we have a great guest today. We have Rick Hotchner with us to play Is This Legal? And as always, we'll end with another dumb criminal of the week. Yeah, it, uh, this is loaded today. I mean, uh, for all of those true crime miners out there, I guess you could say we struck gold uh, and we got a lot <laughs> to talk about here. So uh, let's get to it. I think we're first going to start with Brian Walsh. Um, so this is a murder case. Um, the quick overview is that a man named Brian Walsh has been charged with the murder of his wife, Anna Walsh. Uh, they have three children together. It's very sad. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the chronology of events that led to uh, Mr. Walsh's arrest. Um, it, there's there's a lot going on here, Russ. Um we're going to break it down. We'll talk about uh, the facts against Mr. Walsh, but then we'll also talk about possible defenses that he has available to him. But essentially, uh, this is a couple. Um, they uh, they live in the Massachusetts area, and um, this happened right around the beginning of 2023. In fact, um, Anna Walsh went missing on New Year's Day 2023. Um, here's what we know about this disappearance. She is employed. A, she has a, a high-powered real estate gig. I'm not quite exactly sure what she does, but that's what I saw. She's, in the, yeah, she's in commercial property management. Got it. Okay. So um, she travels from time to time. And uh, uh, what, what Mr. Walsh told investigators was that on the early morning of January 1st, 2023, um, Anna Walsh departed on an emergency trip to Washington, D.C., to deal with something going on with um, her or related to her job. And as uh, you know, she said this was common, uh, but she is gone. Uh, she never checks into her job and she's eventually reported missing on January 4th by her coworkers. Yeah, her coworkers are worried because they haven't heard from her. They haven't seen her. Right. He was not, she was not reported missing by her husband of note, but uh, we'll, we'll get to that later. Um, now, so she she's missing. You know, no one knows where she is. By the fourth, this is a missing persons case, and of course, uh, investigators want to interview immediate family members. So they start talking with Brian Walsh. And and is Brian uh, forthcoming in being completely honest with investigators, Colin? Well, 
where to begin here? I, I guess the short answer would be no, Russ, right. and, and we're, we're, we're going to get into that. But, uh, you know, one interesting thing is that, uh, Russ, have you ever seen the movie The Thomas Crown Affair? You know, I never have. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, that's a good one. You know, there, there, there were two versions, one with Steve McQueen and then one with Piers Brosnan. Um, I actually love the one with Piers Brosnan. But anyway, um, it, it's about art, fraud, and, you know, forgeries and stuff like that. Well, why, why are we guy, talking about art fraud and forgeries in a murder investigation? I'm so glad you asked <laughs> because Brian Walsh pled guilty in 2021 to federal fraud, Russ. He stole a bunch of Andy Warhol paintings from his college roommate and then used the originals to commission forgeries. And he pled guilty and is going to be sentenced in that crime. When this disappearance slash homicide happened... He is actually on pre-sentence probation. His movements are being tracked. He's not allowed to go certain areas. That's what's going on with him when this disappearance happens, just as kind of a threshold matter. I think that's interesting. Right. Um, But in terms of what... So he starts saying, well, my wife disappeared. I I don't know where she is. And they're like, well, okay, let's... uh, Can we see your phone? Uh, we, we, We obviously have an interest in what you've been doing because you were the last one to see her. And Brian says, well, my phone's missing. I, I, I lost my phone. Um, I, th- I think my kids were playing with it, and I haven't seen I, – I was missing my phone from January 1st to January 2nd. Didn't have it. Didn't make any calls, which, of course, is interesting. Um, and we talked about that with the Koberger case. Is it possible that this guy doesn't want to be tracked? Is it possible that he put his phone somewhere because he didn't want to be seen? And – the reason that that's suspicious, Russ, is because he did go places. He did do certain things that had law enforcement, um, let's just say, inquisitive. So how do they know that, Colin? How does law enforcement know he went places they and asked did things? Him. They said, hey, what have you been doing? Right. Um, and they say, okay. So for one thing, he says, well, I, I needed to go pick up my mom. She had cataract surgery, she, and, and I needed to pick her up and make sure she got home okay. Um, and remember, because his uh, movements are being monitored, he had asked permission in order to do that. Turns out he didn't. And it turns out that he didn't drive his mom home from cataract surgery. She drove herself home. Right. But then he, he switches and says, well, yeah, I didn't take her home from surgery, but I did go to Whole Foods and CVS in order to get her some supplies. So what, what do you think law enforcement did with that information? They, I think they pulled the surveillance from Whole Foods and CVS to see if he was there when he said he was going to be there. They did do that. And of course, they don't find any evidence that he was at either store. So they have him lying. Yes. So they have him lying and, 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 and really some fairly inexplic- for fairly inexplicable reasons. Okay. And, and this, this goes back to, you know, what we always say is you never have to speak to the police. Right. Right. If you do, you're exposing yourself to obstructing a police officer or some other charge, whatever it is in your area, where they can prove you're lying to the police in the course of an investigation, that's an independent crime right there. Right, right. I mean, it, it's 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 such a tricky decision that a person has to make here, right? Because, I mean, our, our legal advice uh, to anybody is you never have to talk to the police. So what if he had clammed up and said, I, I'm just not saying anything? Doesn't that look 10 times worse, Russ? I mean, it, I, I, I know that that's the legal advice we provide people, but your wife's missing and you're not going to cooperate in any way. It looks terrible. Right. And, and it absolutely will prompt a microscope over you to see what you're hiding because clearly you're hiding something. But 
But you know what that would have done in this case, Colin, is that would have prevented the police from arresting him before they had probable cause for murder. They arrested him on obstructing police. Th- that's correct. Um, so I'm going to get to that in just one second. There's a, just a couple more pieces of, of, of evidence that the investigators were, were compiling. He wasn't seen at that wall, at that uh, Whole Foods and that CVS I talked about, but you know where he was seen on January 2nd, Russ? He was seen in a Home Depot. He spent about $450, Russ, on some of the following items, cleaning supplies, mops, a tape, uh, a tape, a Tyvek suit, um, and and a Tyvek suit for yeah, anyone top, out there who doesn't know that's head to toe like covering the Breaking Bad suit kind of thing. Yeah, right. this is to prevent contamination if you're doing like environmental hazard cleanup. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like like if you're disposing of a dead body, for example. <laughs> so. Um, they they find you know they, they they see this tape which of course piques their interest and, and by the way going back to the pre sentencing thing he did not have permission to go to that Home Depot this yeah. was something he he went by the way he put on a mask uh, so you know presumably perhaps to conceal his identity but they were able to figure out that it was him and gloves yeah so there's so in terms of other evidence that they find so Russ I'm going to come back to what you mentioned the police do decide to arrest him for lying to investigators, essentially. And that allows them to hold him uh, without bond while they continue their investigation. Russ, they continue their investigation, and this is what they start finding. They start seeing that he made uh, he, that his car and a person matching his description is seen at a couple of apartment complex dumpster locations, and he's taking heavy bags and he's disposing of them. Now, they tried to trace the garbage from those dumpsters, but uh, the garbage had already been destroyed. Incinerated. <sighs> Incinerated. Uh, but uh, they didn't fret because there was one more place that they checked. And it turns out there's an, uh, an apartment complex right where where this guy's mother, Brian Walsh's mother lives. And they checked the trash bin there. And they did find evidence that is fairly incriminating, I would say. I mean, first of all, they find uh, the, they find a Tyvek suit that he purchased just a couple of days earlier. Right. It's got his DNA on it, and it has his wife's DNA on it. Right. Uh, they find a hacksaw, Russ. We'll talk about that in just a second. They find a hatchet. Yep. They find a rug that is a piece of carpet that's soaked with blood. Right. Uh, they do not find a body. Or body parts, but they do find the uh, victims, the alleged victims, COVID uh, or uh, COVID nineteen vaccination, vaccination record. They also showed a Prada purse that they think belongs to her, right. uh, and some other items. So these items were disposed of in apartment complex right by this guy's mother's dumpster. The uh, dumpster in his mother's apartment complex. Yeah, fair, fairly damning stuff here. So let's let's just jump back a second. Like why? Because we talked in the Koberger podcast for anyone who listens, we talked about how smart it was for the police to not jump the gun, to not alert Koberger that they were investigating him, right. to actually wait and compile everything. We talked about that with Morphew too, uh, the Barry Morphew well, case. the opposite, right? Right. Where the police jumped the gun on that. Right, right. Yes. And arrested him before they had enough evidence. Correct. Which ultimately maybe led to his acquittal or his just dismissal, I should say. So for this case, why did the police make a mistake, Colin? Or was this actually... 
good police work. Overall, I mean, it's hard to say. Of course, we don't know everything. In fact, we still haven't seen the arrest affidavit. I mean, we're we're, we're compiling information that we have just kind of based on what's out there in the media. But Russ, I think so far I see pretty good police work here. I mean, I don't see why they would have waited because if they believed that he did kill her and dispose of the body in the manner he described, well, that evidence is long gone if it's right. been incinerated. So this isn't a situation where I would think they were waiting to see whether or not she might come back or could be located in other, any other means. I think they're making the clear assumption that she is dead and that her body's been disposed of. And here's why it's different. They had with him already at that point, very early in the, the investigation, investigation, they had enough probable cause to charge him with lying to police and to get a half a million dollar bond. His bond was $500,000. So there was some assurance there that this is going to keep him here. Mm -hmm. So if they're scared that he thinks they're onto him and he's going to flee and take off, well, here we go. Here's a charge that they have probable cause for. They can arrest him. They can get a really high bond and they can make sure they don't have to track him down to Ecuador and bring him back. That's right. So he's arrested on January 8th for basically lying to investigators. Russ, can we talk about the Google searches that they found on Mr. Walsh's son's iPad? Oh, my gosh. I mean, this may be a future DCOTW, uh, yeah. but if, I mean, this man is innocent until proven guilty, of course, we are going to talk about some defenses. But one thing that his attorneys are going to have to contend with, Russ, is the fact that they they pulled his I think it's his six year old son's iPad. He the, the the kids are they have three boys ages two through six, and they uh, they get the iPad and they start looking at the Google searches, and here's what they find, Russ. Th- these are some of the searches: how to stop a body from decomposing, how long before a body starts to smell, how long for someone to be missing in order to inherit, how long does DNA last. Dismemberment and the best ways to dispose of a body. Yikes. Is hacksaw the, is a hacksaw the best tool to dismember? I, I, I got to ask you, I wonder what websites this right. guy was taken to. Oh, yeah, what kind of results is he getting here? Right. <laughs> Need to dispose of a body. I've done it a million times. Right. <laughs> I've, I've tried and true. I'm, I've got five-star ratings. You, you can uh, subscribe. You've come to the right place. <laughs> Just... So uh, they find, and, and there's like 10 other Google searches that are equally damning. So this is not good. Of course, he's, he's, so defenses, Russ. I mean, we are defense attorneys. How how you think we might look at this case? What, what do you think we would uh, come up with here? All right. First of all, it's his son's iPad. We have no idea who has access to right. that iPad. We have no idea where that iPad has been. That iPad presumably is not password protected. Um, so how do you know he made those searches? Right. Okay. So there's there's number one. I mean, the giant elephant in the room is you have no body. Right. And right. Boy, that really matters. You know, I mean... They have a lot of circumstantial evidence here, right. but you know when when we say circumstantial evidence, what they don't have is direct evidence. They don't have a body that right. they can look at and examine and do an autopsy on and figure out, okay, how long has this person been deceased? Uh, what was their cause of death? Those things, that's information that at least right now it doesn't appear they're going to have. And I'll tell you, Anna Walsh's mother made a statement to the media basically saying, there is no way Brian Walsh could have or would have murdered Anna Walsh. 
and she is completely behind him and she is distraught that everyone in the media thinks her daughter is dead and she still is hoping and expecting her daughter to show up. Wow. Yeah, I've seen other things, though, on the media talking about that this guy had previous instances of violence. Uh, I don't know that he, he was dangerous. There's apparently, again, I saw something on the media and I haven't verified this, but apparently she, uh, Anna Walsh called the police in 2014 to report that her husband had threatened to kill her. Police came out and investigated, but no charges were ever filed, but there was a police report generated. Who knows? Okay. So, and and that stuff, that stuff could come in at a trial you have to file a motion for it, but it could come in. So there's there's a lot, like we said, we are just going essentially with what the DA has released so far. Right. So, I mean, that's that's maybe the biggest thing as defense attorneys. Like, there's a ton out there. The DA is cherry picking what the DA wants to release right now. So we'll know a lot more as the affidavit comes out. And, you know, presumably as long as it continues to be this interesting, we'll probably do a follow-up. Yeah, probably. So uh, next steps for this case. So there's a status hearing on February 9th, Russ, and then uh, most likely the case will get set for preliminary hearing. So uh, that's when I'm sure we'll find out a lot more detail about the timeline and stuff going on with this case. But yeah, it's it's pretty fascinating. So um, that's the first case that we wanted to talk about. And uh, right after the break, we're going to get into Alec Baldwin's legal woes that just came down this week. But before we do that, we are going to play a brand new game of Is This Legal with our podcast guests. So uh, let's do that now. Stay tuned after the break. Our guest today is Rick Hotchner. Rick retired from the CIA's Senior Intelligence Service after 28 years of service in the Directorate of Operations. He has served the United States all over the world and has held several senior leadership positions at CIA headquarters. This is a guy who knows where the bodies are buried, but don't <laughs> ask him where, because if he told you, he'd probably have to kill you. He now spends his time advising companies and nonprofits on a wide range of leadership, security, and geopolitical issues while advocating for various causes near and dear to his heart. This includes his work as an ambassador for Braver Angels, a national movement aimed at bridging the partisan divide between conservatives and progressives in today's polarized political climate. Welcome to the show, Rick. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Welcome, Rick. That That is an impressive resume. Um, I mean, 28 years with the CIA. I would imagine you have a story or two, probably that can't go out over the air, huh? Indeed. You're exactly right. <laughs> so we're, we're not going to talk any more about that. <laughs> so, Rick, what keeps you busy uh, these days now that you've been retired? So, um, you know, as, as Russell man, uh, mentioned, I'm uh, doing some advising for companies. I'm on a, a couple of advisory boards specifically uh, for uh, for companies that are involved in the national security space. Um, one of them in, in particular is involved in post-quantum encryption, um, and they've got some really exciting things going on. They're called American Binary. Um, and then other than that, I'm really doing a, a range of, uh, you know, what you guys would call pro bono work. Um, I'm, you know, involved with a, an organization called uh, with Brave Angels, like like uh, like Russell said, um, and uh, also involved with a, uh, an organization called Veterati.com, um, where 
uh, veterans that are trans- in transition out of the service uh, into the private sector, um, you know, get mentoring um, assistance from from people like myself. Um, so I've got a profile there. Mentors can scroll through profiles and and, and pick people um, that they would like to talk to, and and then we set up calls and talk. Um, so that's that's good as well. And then uh, you know, I'm doing uh, you know various other things that uh, that come up as well. Um, it's just it's nice to. Be retired from government with a, a pension. Thank you to the taxpayers for that. It means that I don't have to worry too much about income and I can worry more about just doing stuff that's important to me. Rick, I would think it might be a tough transition. I, w- I would think that, you know, being in the CIA for so long was probably, I mean, that's exciting, right? There's there's a lot going on and you're doing very important work. Was it a tough transition to leave that to the private sector? Yeah, it's a good question. I want to get a fair amount. Um I would say that while it was a tremendous career and I, I, I loved it, um, it, it also is um, draining work. Um, it's it's intense and long hours. Um, and, you know, as one gets older, um, that takes a toll. And then the other thing is that um, it not only requires a sacrifice on the part of, of the officers, but also on the part of the families um, of right. the officers. Um, and at the time I retired, um, all of our kids were out of the house. Um, but um, my wife, uh, who was a diplomat, um, she retired a couple of years after I, I did, um, was in Istanbul and I was in Washington. Um, and and so that that family sacrifice of having to be a part um, just sort of, you know, weighing the pros and cons of uh, being able to retire or staying in just it, it became time to go. Um, gotcha. So. So, yeah, you know, you 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 see what's happening in the world. You know, my brother James um, teases me that, oh, it's good to know all the problems are solved now. You can go. Um, <laughs> but, um, but uh, you know, the, the reality is, is it you know, it comes time for everybody to go and other people to pick up the baton. And and so it was time for me. And, and you know, I just try to give back in other ways now. Well, Rick, that's that's incredible. I mean, listening to your resume when Russ introduced you was really impressive and uh, as, as American citizens, we appreciate everything that you've done, uh, in particular, the things that you probably can't even begin to tell us about. <laughs> but, uh, Rick, we're going to see if uh, during that long career span, uh, you had any chance to brush up on your legal acumen here. Because, uh, Rick Hotchner, it is time to play Is This Legal? Are you ready, my good man? I think I am. Let's see. All right. Well, so, um, you know, for those listening at home, uh, this is the segment where we present our guest with a fictional legal scenario, and we're going to ask him his thoughts about it. So, uh, Rick, if you're ready, I'm going to go right into it here. Shoot. Okay. So, our friend Jebediah is behind in his gambling debts again. He just purchased a fancy new motocar and decides to go to work as an Uber driver. He gets a ride request one Friday night, and he picks up Myrtle, uh, a young woman. And Myrtle has obviously been partying. She is really, really, really drunk. Um, She can barely walk. She can barely talk. She stumbles into the car. Jebediah decides to go ahead and transport her anyway. But of course, two blocks into the ride, Myrtle starts throwing up in the back seat of the car. Jebediah is not happy about this. It's his brand new motor car, after all. He uh, pulls over to the side of the road, kicks Myrtle out of the car, and terminates the ride, and he drives off. Meanwhile, Myrtle, still incredibly intoxicated, not knowing where she is, steps into the road and is struck and tragically killed by another car that's driving down the road. Your first question, Rick, 
can Jebediah be charged with a crime related to Myrtle's death? Wow. Um, are the Uber uh, uh, rules of service or whatever relevant here at all? Let's. That's a great question. Let's let's assume that he is within his rights to terminate a ride if mm-hmm. the person is engaged in misconduct, like vomiting in the back of his car. So let's assume he is. He has grounds to terminate the ride as as far as that goes. Okay. Yeah, it's more leaving her there in her state. What do you think about that? Um. Yeah, I I, I don't know the law well enough to say whether he can do that or not as a is a moral question. Um, it seems like the wrong thing to do, but legally, I don't know if he has any, any requirement to, um, you know, to put, bring her to a place where she would be safe. Okay. So um, your, so your answer is no, maybe a moral requirement, but not a legal requirement, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that's, that, that's my take on it based on, uh, ignorance of the law in this case. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, it turns out that your ignorance shall win you this round, my friend, because that is, <laughs> that is correct. Uh, we, we agree with you that in this particular case, uh, Jebediah has no criminal liability. Um, you know, in, in, in the uh, we, we specifically said he kind of dropped her off shortly after he had taken off. And at that point, if she's not if she's unable to kind of control herself, in the ride, as long as he drops her off in a reasonable location where she can find another ride, um, you know, she's obviously got her phone because she called Uber. So we we don't think there's any criminal liability here. But we, of course, we do have a part two that we'd like to ask you. We're going <laughs> to change. We're going to for question number two. Let's just say that the facts are the same, but that uh, while Jebediah is transporting Myrtle, he's on the highway and uh, she throws up. He pulls over to the side of the interstate, drops her off. He basically kicks her out of the car and she walks. She subsequently walks into a lane of traffic and is killed by a car. Does the the highway drop off change anything for you, Rick? Well, at least based on on the the premise from the first part of the question that he could have dropped her off because he was dropping her off shortly after picking her up. She, you know, could have found a ride where she was. The highway doesn't meet those those characteristics, and that would be a, a more dangerous place where she's unlikely to find a ride, and and therefore probably not something that he should have done. Yeah, and okay. we we agree. So there's a couple things that we've thought of that that he could be liable for, um, Rick. So the first one is potentially criminally negligent homicide, which basically says a person who causes the death of another person by conduct amounting to criminal negligence commits criminally negligence homicide. Now, setting aside the fact that my fourth grade teacher, Miss Cornell, is rolling over in her grave because you're, the, the statute is defining the statute with what it is. Like, criminally negligent homicide is when you're criminally negligent, of course. <laughs> but, that's but, not allowed. Right, exactly. But yet, that's how the legislature did it. Um, so, so that's one. So what do you think about that? Did he cause her death by conduct amounting to criminal negligence. Cause is a strong word. Um, I think he, he created word. a possibility that it could happen. Um, yep. So I guess it depends on, uh, you know, how far does negligence take you on that, on that yeah. point? So Rick, I mean, you're, you're honing in on all the right stuff because we agree with you. Causation is the issue here. Like, 
he he maybe had some part in it, but I don't we don't think you can directly link a causal link between him dropping her off and her getting tragically struck and killed. So even on the highway. On the highway, exactly. So here's another one, Rick. What about reckless endangerment? This is when a person recklessly engages in conduct that creates a substantial risk of serious bodily injury to another person. Yeah, that sounds right to me. Rick, this we gave you a tough one. And, and to be honest with you, there's no clear answer. We base this on a real life situation that actually just happened here in Colorado uh, a few weeks ago. People might have read about it in the news. Um, in that case, the Uber driver, he dropped her off on the side of the road. He was not charged on the side um, of a highway. I'm sorry, off. on the side of the highway, on the side of Interstate 25 here in Denver, dropped off his drunk passenger. She wanders out into the middle of traffic, gets struck and killed. Uh, they charged the driver with hitting her, but they did not charge the Uber driver. We'll see whether or not that changes, and we'll update you. But uh, this is a good one, So, um, but we think your legal analysis is actually spot on. So well done. Uh, Russ, we have a winner here. We have a winner. Nice. You guys are very generous. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we have to create incentive for other people to play too, Rick. But, <laughs> That's fair enough. But, but for you, we're being honest. You really nailed it. <laughs> um. So, so Rick, um, thank you so much for playing. Before we let you go, I know you mentioned a couple things earlier. What can people do to get involved in these organizations you're in? Give give people out there some uh, some action items so that they can actually get involved. That's awesome. Thanks a lot, Russell. Um, so for Braver Angels, um, you can go to braverangels.org is the website. Um, you'll find there... Um, uh, the ability to, to subscribe for our newsletter for free uh, for a donation of $12 or more, you can become a member, but you don't even have to do that. You don't even have to be a subscriber to take advantage of all the workshops and other offerings that, that we have. Um, we're really trying to make what we're doing accessible. Um, basically, what that is, is trying to bring people of different perspectives together to have conversations that help them better understand each other, see the humanity in each other, and find common ground if it exists. We're not trying to change anybody's mind, trying to change how we treat each other as fellow Americans. Um, so you can go on on the website, um, click on find an event at the upper right uh, corner, and and see what, what appeals to you. Um, and then for betterati.com, um, just as it sounds, V-E-T-E-R-A-T-I.com. Um, and if you're, you think you're somebody who... Um, you know, has life experience, um, you're, you have a job, whatever, what have you that might be of interest to veterans, um, you know, who are coming out of the service and looking for work in the private sector, um, then uh, you, you can sign up there as a mentor and create a profile. And then you'll have veterans reaching out to you for, for phone calls. Um, I've talked to a bunch of them and they really appreciate it. And it really makes a difference for them. Outstanding. Um, you're doing some great work, Rick. Um, keep it up. We really appreciate it. And listeners out there, um, go check them out. See what you can do to make a difference in the world. Yeah. And if you don't check it out, you know that Rick is going to find you and hunt you down <laughs> and uh, bad things are happening. So he, he has get on the stick, everybody. <laughs> I'm going to give that a no comment. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us and playing Is This Legal with us, Rick. Thank you so much for being on our show. All right. Thanks a lot. Really appreciate talking to you both. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Welcome back, everyone. So we are going to dive into the recent press release by the Santa Fe District Attorney, Mary Carmack. 
Altwies. Altwies, I guess. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. A-L-T-W-I-E-S. Altwies. Who recently just announced that she is going to be charging Alec Baldwin with involuntary manslaughter. And this stems from a accidental shooting on the set of the TV series Rust. Is it a TV series or is it a movie? I thought it was a miniseries. Okay. Um, I'm not positive on that. But regardless, it's a Western. It's called Rust. Yeah, I think it takes place in like the 1880s or something. Right. Uh, You know, and it's being filmed in kind of the outskirts of Santa Fe in the desert area, right? Exactly. Think like Ghost Town. Right. And this is where it's being filmed. The OK Corral. Right. So there's a a few characters you need to know here. I mean, I shouldn't say characters. There's someone died, right? There's a victim here. Uh, Hala Hutchins. She was a cinematographer and she was behind the camera while Alec Baldwin was rehearsing a scene. Alec Baldwin was handed a gun. There was supposed to be no live rounds of ammunition on the whole set. You know, this isn't a real Western. This is a movie and these should all be blanks, dummy rounds. The assistant director by the name of David Halls handed Alec Baldwin a gun. He announced cold gun and Alex ball Alec Baldwin used this to rehearse a scene what does cold gun mean cold gun means there is no live ammo right it is a it basically a, means the gun's safe right Gun safe exactly and now there's another person on set who is involved and this is the armor because the set has an armor the armor is their responsibility is firearm safety right that's their job and that they, was a woman named Hannah Gutierrez Reed. Okay, so she presumably had checked to make sure that the guns were safe. Uh, David Halls handed Alec the gun. Alec, the the scene called for him to cock the gun, to pull the hammer back on the gun, not to fire it. He his statement is that he did pull the hammer back. He let it go. And then the gun fired. The gun fired one round discharged. It went through Hala Hutchins' chest, killing her. It actually went through her chest and hit the shoulder of an assistant director who was injured, but not seriously. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so that's that's what happened here. Now, this happened sometime in October of twenty one. Yeah. These these announced long time ago. Long uh, time as ago. These cases go right. So there, a lot has happened. Like there was already a civil lawsuit that right. was settled. Right. Um, but now we are beginning of 2023 DA says by the end of this month, criminal charges are going to be filed. Right. I guess and to, to just make this super crystal clear, uh, cause whenever we talk about civil liability versus criminal li- liability, we just want to make sure we know what you're talking about. Um, so as Russ just mentioned, um, the family of the cinematographer who was killed sued, uh, the production company, uh, and settled a lawsuit for the wrongful death. So that's already been taken care of. That is the civil lawsuit. Right. Uh, so damages have been paid out to this family. What we're talking about here is the district attorney. That's We're talking about criminal violations here. She has charged, she's going to charge Alec Baldwin with a couple of crimes. We're going to get into those and we're going to discuss whether or not we think those are appropriate. So she's charging three people or has, well, she's charged one and she's charging two more. Right. So those three are the people we mentioned, Alec Baldwin, the armorer, 
Hannah Gutierrez-Reed. Those two are both being charged or going to be charged with two counts of involuntary manslaughter. Now, David Halls, the assistant director who handed Alec the gun and said cold gun, he has already agreed to plead guilty to negligent use of a deadly weapon. Now, the involuntary manslaughter charges are class four felonies, Colin. The uh, uh, charge that... David Halls has agreed to plead guilty to is a petty misdemeanor. Right. And so negligent, uh, exactly, negligent use of a firearm. And so they're saying that 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 guy, he's the one who said cold gun, cold gun. He was obviously incorrect about that. Right. So he got a misdemeanor, and yet the DA is pursuing felony charges against Alec Baldwin in the armor. So let's talk about manslaughter in New Mexico. I'm going to just read from the statute. Now, listen, bear with me. There's legalese here, and Russ and I are going to break it down uh, after we go through it. But in New Mexico, involuntary manslaughter consists of manslaughter committed in the commission of an unlawful act not amounting to a felony or in the commission of a lawful act which might produce death in an unlawful manner without due caution and circumspen- ah, circumspection. That's a word we don't see very often. So the DA has charged this case. In, is She said she's going to charge the case in two ways. That hasn't right. been happening. She's basically saying we are planning to charge, which is kind of weird. We'll talk about that yeah, later. Yeah, we'll talk about her in a minute. But um, so basically, here, here are the theories that I think she's operating under, Russ. Uh, Now, uh, involuntary manslaughter type one, she's saying that if Alec Baldwin was negligent in the handling of a firearm, which would be a misdemeanor offense, and because of that, the gun went off and killed somebody, that's involuntary manslaughter. That's the first way to interpret it. The other way to interpret it is even if Alec Baldwin was not engaged in a criminal act. In other words, if he wasn't negligently handling the firearm, but the gun still went off, she's saying that's still involuntary manslaughter, but the, uh, the mens rea, the, 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 that has to be higher than mere negligence. Okay. So so it has to be recklessness. Right. Recklessness would probably be the next step up. So he was reckless in the handling of a firearm. It went off without his intention and killed someone. Here's what I find very odd about this New Mexico statute, Colin, and it it does not make a lot of sense to me. The involuntary manslaughter, while you're engaged in a lawful act, while it has a higher mens rea, which makes sense Mm because you're doing something lawful. Recklessly. That also has with it a firearm enhancement. So if a firearm is used in the commission of involuntary manslaughter... For a lawful act, that carries with it a five-year mandatory prison sentence. Whereas the the other one, which is you're you know you're actually doing something unlawfully, a misdemeanor, right? That doesn't carry that enhancement. That that is weird. It's it's almost like they flip flop those. It is. It's almost like it's it's a typo in the statute. Well, and you know, it's noteworthy that the DA is basically saying, "Look, we're kind of proceeding under both theories, and we're going to let the the uh, jury make right. the decision on this." Which I don't know. I we'll see. I'll, I'll tell you in in my experience in trial. It is almost always a mistake for DAs to to do this. I, we call it riding two horses. Right. Because if the DA is not even sure how this crime occurred or what the mental state is for it, how can that be proof beyond a reasonable doubt? Right. Well, should we talk about the DA a little bit? 
Let's let's talk about old Mary. Uh, so um, Mary Carmack Altwees, I and I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing the name. Here's what we know about her. Um, so she's actually an elected Democrat. She uh, has spent time on both sides of the aisle, Russ. She's actually a former public defender, um, in addition to being a prosecutor. Uh, so you know, this is not someone who's been a prosecutor her her whole life. Um, now, one thing you know, we we often in high profile cases we will sometimes look somewhat critically at the possible motivations for why a DA is bringing a criminal charge. Because as we know, district attorneys are elected officials. It helps them to be seen. It helps them to have their name in the paper. They often have their eyes on higher offices. Yeah. And I'll tell you this, uh, Russ, and, and this is what I would consider unusual. She has given interviews about this case, about this pending case to the LA Times, to CNN, to the New Mexican, which is a newspaper, and to ABC News. All right, she's she's basically doing a media tour in addition to uh, putting out a big press release, basically explaining her charging decision. Why do DAs do that, Russ? And 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 is it ethical for them to do that? So, I mean, the the reason oftentimes DAs do that is to get to elevate their name. To basically get in the news, um, here here's a statement that I I wrote down one of her many statements on this, um, and it it just reads like a very very put together with forethought soundbite. It is on my watch. No one is above the law, and everyone deserves justice. Right, and that is one of the statements she's released. And you know maybe Colin and I are cynical here, but it. It reads like someone who is just trying to position themselves as law and order, and I'm doing this to set myself up for re-election. And who knows, right? Maybe we're being unfair and jumping right. the gun, but that that's how it reads to me. And I have my own perspective. Everyone else can have their own perspective, too. Right. I don't think she's done anything unethical. No, um, I don't You either. know, answering my own question. I mean, the, the DA is allowed. She's a public official. She's allowed to make statements about the case. But I, I also... I can tell you as a former prosecutor myself, I'm sure you received similar training. We were told, look, it's not a great idea to not to, to discuss a case that you're going to try in the media. And if this- you make statements about a case that turn out not to be true right. or that get blown up later, um, you know, what you've kind of done is you've tainted your jury pool. And that's, that's the concern that I have with this lady making so many statements. Well, now, I'll tell you, it's <clears> odd too, that this is before it even got filed. Right. Right. This is before a case has been filed. She's exactly. given all these interviews. She's talking about this case that, that isn't even in court yet. Yeah. I mean, generally what I think a DA is much better served in doing is saying, look, the details are going to come out in court. Um, right. we, we've worked really thoroughly with the investigators and we're satisfied that we uh, can prove this case beyond a reasonable doubt. We're moving forward with the case. That's really all she needs to say. She doesn't need to justify her investigation. She doesn't need to justify her charging decision, but that seems to be, she feels a need to, uh, to do that. And, then, and, and we're not saying that this is a political prosecution here. We don't have enough evidence to say that. But I will say this, Russ, if, 
you know, if you've got a borderline case against somebody, um, a really, really good way to keep your name in the paper is to charge a movie star with like Alec Baldwin with a crime. <laughs> and I got to say, I'm very, very curious why she feels like she needs to go after this person more than the person, David Hall, who actually provided the hot gun in the first place to Alec Baldwin. That is an excellent, excellent, excellent point, Colin, because remember, David Halls, who is the assistant director, he is the one who presumably checked the gun. He announced it as a cold gun. He handed it to Alec Baldwin to use in this rehearsal. He is not charged with negligent or involuntary manslaughter. Right. He is charged with a petty misdemeanor right. with an agreement to cooperate in the prosecution against um, the armor Hannah Gutierrez-Reed and Alec Baldwin. Yeah. So let's talk about that, Russ. I mean, because we're talking about a movie set, and like, I mean, one one reaction that I kind of had here is if you have an armor whose job it is to make sure everything is safe and you know, that something like this doesn't happen, why not just isolate the armor? Armor. Why go after Alec Baldwin? I mean, let's talk about that. Yeah. So here's, here's an example. Here's a, here's a hypothetical that I thought of, cause I wanted to, I wanted to try to take this out of the, uh, the, the current circumstances and see if it made sense when you put it in a different circumstance. So, so bear with me here, listeners. So let's say that Jebediah and Cornelius are, have made amends. They're back to their infrequent friendships and they decide they're going to go out rock climbing. Neither of them is a rock climber, so they hire a guide who is versed, well-versed in rock climbing, and they go out with the guide to, to climb rocks, and it is a rock climbing route that requires you to be roped in. So the guide sets Cornelius up to climb the rock. Now, Jebediah is going to be the person holding the rope on belay. So on Jebed- the ground, basically on the ground. making sure Cornelius doesn't fall. Yeah. Okay. So theoretically, how this works is Jebediah is holding the rope. If Cornelius falls, Jebediah has the rope. It catches Cornelius. Cornelius does not fall to his death, and everything's good. Okay? So the guide ropes Cornelius in, hands Jebediah the rope, and says, okay, climb, Cornelius. Cornelius starts climbing. He is 50 feet up. He slips. He falls. Jebediah holds onto the rope, but Cornelius was improperly roped in by the guide. Cornelius falls to his death. Okay. In that scenario, do you, the listener, think that Jebediah has criminal liability? Right. Is he liable for Cornelius's death? Because he never professed to be a rope expert. I mean, hearing you put it in those terms, I'm I'm sitting here saying, I absolutely you don't assign any criminal liability toward Jebediah. You would assign the liability to the guide. You know, similarly to what was done here with regard to involuntary manslaughter, perhaps negligent tying of a rope, and we're talking about a very dangerous activity um, where this guy is an expert everybody relied on his expertise to assume that what was going on was safe. So I think what you're saying here is that Jebediah is kind of the equivalent of Alec Baldwin. Yes. Why are we charging Alec Baldwin with something when he literally had experts that he was paying and relying upon to give him accurate information about something that he's not an expert in firearm safety. Right. You know, 
And, 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 and I'll tell you, I, the district attorney's commented about this, and I want to talk about it because I, I see an issue here. The district attorney has said, well, you know what? We think that actors, um, the buck doesn't stop with them just because they're an actor. They had a duty to check that firearm, too. And so I'm sitting here to myself, okay, then what's the point of having an armor? Right. What's the point of having an assistant director? If these people are supposed to make sure that the gun is safe, are we really wanting uh, Every an actor. untrained actor who just showed up on set to be messing around with this firearm to check what the expert has already told them to be true? That doesn't make a lot of sense to me, Russ. Right. How about, how about, and I'm with you on all that, how about the argument, though, that Alec Baldwin was a producer on this? And there is evidence that this whole set was had a history of of lack of safety, you, lack of you, protocols. Um, there, there were problems yeah. with this shoot. I agree. And, and we should talk about that because, you know, th- there were a lot of complaints apparently from people who were working on the set that first of all, that this was a very difficult shoot. I mean, we're talking about a desert location. Um, everything's kind of brought out to this remote location, long hours. Um, and, and they're obviously somehow, these these live rounds were not even supposed to be on set. And apparently there were like six live rounds, Russ, that were found on set. We, we still don't know, by the way, how those how live got rounds there. got there on set. Definitely. I definitely think there's something to be said. Well, you know what? The buck stops with the producer. The buck stops with the person who's supposed to kind of oversee everything and make make everything okay. But I'll tell you right now, Russ, I think that's more compelling from a civil liability standpoint. As yes. opposed to a criminal liability right. standpoint, right. you know, is Alec Baldwin as a producer of a film responsible for what happens on set? Yes, I think he is, but not. I don't think criminal. I, I will say I think it's a stretch based on the information that we know right now. I find this to be a stretch against uh, Alec Baldwin with regard to these charges. Yeah, I mean, I we we obviously don't know everything. But right, I agree with you. I think from a defense perspective, this prosecution seems like a stretch, um, and. We'll see what happens when more information is released. And being devil's advocate for a minute, I think, you know, one thing the DA has said is, you know what? Firearms are a completely different ballgame. If you're talking about fake guns and things like that, then everybody who handles that firearm, including actors, should be trained in terms of how the firearm works, whether or not it's live or, uh, or hot or cold, that kind of thing. I, I, I can understand that. Um, you know, I mean, I understand what she's saying, but I, I, I don't know that I love the way it's being applied in this particular case. Yeah, that's that's tough for me to get behind just because that's what the armor is there for. I mean, right. how many movies and shows are right. there? The fact with- that there was an armor on set, doesn't that kind of absolve Alec in a certain way of, of negligence? Like, we actually tried to do this the right way. We hired this person. Right. We, we had him rope up Cornelius. Yeah. yeah. So it, it, it's a tragic case, um, and we will obviously follow this one. We'll get more information. Once more details come out, again, this is super early. We don't know everything. Maybe we'll get more information that changes things up. But uh, Russ, I think it's time we uh, lighten the mood just a little bit. You know, a lot of, a lot of murder and shootings and stuff here. Let's, let's talk about something a little bit more silly. I think it is time for... D-C-O-T-W! The oh, yeah. Dumb Criminal of the Week! This week's DCOTW takes us to Yukon, Oklahoma. Ooh. I don't know that we've had an Oklahoma one before. I don't before. think so. 
Well, this is this is a good one. Um, so, I didn't know the Yukon was in Oklahoma. Yeah, me either, but, but apparently Jack it is. London. That's that's where he wrote <laughs> Call of the Wild. Right. That's all in Oklahoma. Uh, man, a lot, lot of gold mining and dog sleds in Oklahoma. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I mean these days there's just a lot of weed. Which yeah. we should do a podcast on that. Oh yeah. Uh, did you guys know Oklahoma is the weed capital of the world? It, it is. is. It we'll is. talk about it later. True. True story. All right, so in Yukon, Oklahoma, a 911 operator got a call from Mark Allen Clare and Shannon Blake McAllister. Unfortunately for Mark and Shannon, they didn't mean to call 911. One of them unintentionally butt-dialed 911. Okay. So as the 911 operator was on the line asking what's the address of the emergency, what's the nature of the emergency, they're not hearing her. They are just talking. And what they're talking about is how the latest shipment of drugs they received was the mother load. Oh, boy. I mean, the police, Colin, could not have scripted it better. They're talking about hydrocodone pills, ecstasy, weed. Predictably, the 911 operator lets the police know what she happens to be overhearing on this 911 call. Probably gave him the recording, I would imagine. Yep. The police trace the call. They go there and they quickly arrest Mark and Shannon and recover $20,000 worth of pills and marijuana. Wow. I mean, a a butt dial gone awry, Colin. Yeah. Um, I mean, I mean, Mark. I've I've heard of expensive uh, collect calls, but uh, I think the fees that that thing is going to drive for these people is going to go through the roof. That's pretty rough. (laughs) I I mean, Mark and Shannon. I hate to make you the butt of our jokes, <laughs> but, but, but you are. <laughs> so, so what? What do we think, Colin? What on a scale of one to five? Oh. How many knuckleheads do these knuckleheads get? Man, I mean, look. If you're gonna be talking about your illegal drug trade and usage, you obviously need to make sure that no one's listening, right? Um, you know, maybe it's better just to not talk about that at all uh, <laughs> with anybody. You know, keep, keep it on the DL. Um, it, that's a good one. Um, did I mean? Did they confess? Like they just like I, police I showed up and the, the, the jig was up. The right? jig was up. Yeah. <sighs> Pretty stupid. Offer a butt dial. This feels like a four to me, four knuckleheads, yeah. uh, four out of five knuckleheads. I, the, I mean, the, the level of detail, uh, the information that they must have been able to provide for the police to get a search warrant and search that. I mean, that must have been pretty amazing. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to give them a three just because it was unintentional. Maybe, but it, was, still, maybe it was a cry for help. Maybe, <laughs> maybe one of them just <laughs> needed an intervention. I, I subconsciously was hoping you guys would be here. I mean, you never know. It could you never be. know. Right. Yeah. Hey, you know and, what? And we, we like happy endings around here. Maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe this was the wake up call that these guys needed. They're on the road to rehabilitation right. right now. Yeah, they're doing great. They're doing volunteer work. Well, no more drugs, and, and, and they only get a total of seven out of ten. So they're not the dumbest criminals we've yeah, ever seen. Pretty dumb, but yeah, yeah, there's way worse. Way worse. So they got that going for them. All right, guys. Well, that's what we have. That's our show for this week. Oh, actually, one quick thing. We we did promise a Brian Koberger update. Um, so that was that was the focus of our last episode. Uh, for you listeners out there, we did a deep dive on his case. The Moscow uh, murders. Th- exactly. In, in Idaho. So his case was set for preliminary hearing in July. So that case is going to cool off for a little bit. Uh, that's that's going to be like a five-day hearing where they determine whether or not there's probable cause to hold him. But there is one update factually, Russ. Uh, there might be a connection 
between Koberger and these victims that we didn't know about before? We now have a possible motive. It came out recently that they believe he had been trying to contact at least one or maybe more of the victims via social media where the victim was not responding to him. He was making overtures to her and she was ignoring him. Mm -hmm. So we now potentially people have a motive, which we did not have before, which only makes the case tougher to defend. That's right. So of course, we'll keep you apprised of those developments as we go. Uh, and, uh, you know, hope you guys like the true crime stuff. We've certainly been enjoying talking about it. Um, and if you have any, if you have any ideas for our podcast, please do what so many of you have been doing lately and uh, give us some ideas. Shoot us an email. You can reach us at denvercrimelaw at gmail.com. You can reach us at our Twitter page at is this legal pod. Find us on Facebook at Hebbets and McCallan. Drop us a line. Let us know how we're doing, how you're doing, how we're doing, how, how we're all doing. doing. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, we'll talk to you next time on is this legal. Thanks everyone. Be safe. been listening to Is This Legal? See you next time.